Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Ted Joya. Ted is a musician and an author. He's written 11 books, including his latest, which is called Music, A Subversive History. He's been on the faculty at Stanford, and he's been published in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many other newspapers. We talk about why human beings enjoy music from an evolutionary perspective. We discuss the evolution of recorded music from the analog age to the present. We talk about Ted's unique approach to music history. We talk about the increasing market share of older music compared to newer music. We talk about the current state of music criticism and music writing. We talk about how the streaming model has affected the music industry. We discuss the strange phenomenon of fake artists on Spotify. We talk about Hollywood's shift towards doing remakes and sequels and brand extensions as opposed to new stories and much more. So without further ado, Ted Joya. All right, Ted Joya, thanks so much for coming on my show. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I've hung out with your son a bit. Years ago, we, we would get dinner at, at Columbia. He was a really smart guy, and, and I've read your commentary on music, and so it's great to finally meet you virtually. No, actually, the first time I heard about you was through my son. So, uh, you know, it's a small world, as they say. Yeah, so listeners of the podcast will probably know, but my background before I was a quote-unquote public intellectual and writer is that I was and am a musician, primarily a jazz musician by training. I attended Juilliard for a few months before I made the switch to, to Columbia and did philosophy. And I also rap and produce. And so music is, I would still say, probably my main passion. Like if I had to give everything up and do one thing and money was no object, it would be music. So that's my background in a nutshell. Can you give your background with music in a nutshell? And how did you come to write about music? Well, my background is crazy. And whenever people ask me to explain how I got to where I am, it's hard to make sense of it, but it's actually very similar uh, to your background. I wanted to be a jazz musician. That when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a jazz musician. But I came from a working class family. Uh, not only had not my parents been to college, but I didn't know anybody whose parents went to college. So it was a mm. completely working class neighborhood. And I got accepted into Stanford University. And I toyed with the idea of being a music major. And actually, I was a music major for 10 weeks. And oh, I felt tremendous guilt that mm. my family's expectations were that I... <laughs> Our generation, my brother and my sister and I, we were supposed to raise the family out of the working class. And so I ended up on this crazy route where I got a scholarship to go to Oxford, where I studied philosophy too, very similar to yours, in a part mm. of the philosophy, politics, and economics program. And then I went to Stanford Business School and got an MBA to be practical. Meanwhile, I'm trying to practice the piano three hours a day and do gigs. And, you know. and after that, my life was just crazy. I mean, I would do business stuff for a few months, Then I I launched a record label, a jazz record label for a while. I worked for the Boston Consulting Group. Then I taught jazz at Stanford. And my whole life, 
was this crazy quote, but eventually I gravitated more and more to music and music writing. And that's, I have, that's what I'm known for now, but I took a long path to get there. But here's the one interesting aspect of it is that much to my surprise, having gone to business school and studying finance and forecasting, and then doing all this analysis at the Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey, mm. I actually used that now in my music writing. And I never right. thought this would happen, but I'm constantly now having to deal with issues of what's the impact of Spotify on music? How's Apple mm -hmm. influencing music? What about Google and YouTube? And basically, I find that the analytical techniques that I did apply in all this business futurism work that I did and, and, and projecting and forecasting in a bizarre sort of way has, has made me a better music writer in the digital age. So it's a crazy right. story, but it makes sense, but it only makes sense in retrospect. At the time, it made no sense at all. Yeah. So I want to eventually talk about the music industry and what you've written about you know, the streaming model and, and what that is doing. But before we get there, I just want to talk in broad strokes about music. From an evolutionary perspective, it's obvious why we like things like food and, you know, food with sugar and, and sex. And, you know, all of these things have a very straightforward evolutionary story about why it is that human beings derive pleasure from such things. Music is is odd, right? It's not at all obvious that a vibrating column of air paired with another vibrating column of air at just the right frequencies, which you know you know might call like a major third, would be pleasant, and that would be more or less universal to our species. And you know, evolutionary psychologists have debated why it is that we are wired to enjoy this. In your estimation, why is it that our species enjoys music so much? That's a profound question. And my views on this have changed over the years. I remember the first time I read Darwin's account of music. I disagreed with it. What he said was that the model for human music are bird songs. The birds use music to mate. You use the song to find your mate. And this made no sense to me. And there was a big gap in his understanding because he wouldn't talk about apes and monkeys who are supposedly our closer ancestors. And I started researching chimpanzee music and ape music and gorilla music. And the fact is, they're not very good singers. You know, there's not a lot of good. Yeah. The best example for Darwin was birds, but is there really a connection between bird song and human song? And I tended mm -hmm. to dismiss all that. But around 2000, a lot of new information became available. People started studying the hormones that are released in birds when they sing mating songs. And they found it's very similar to the hormones released in humans when they hear music. And we now know that there's a, a hormone oxytocin that is released when we hear music that makes us bond with the people around us. You become more trusting of the people around you when you're singing or hearing a song. Now, this explains many things. It explains why on a date you go out to hear music or dance to music. It explains why... Countries have national anthems because you bond with people when you sing the song. This explains why labor unions would have their own songs, too. The people would work more as a team if they had a song. This explains why military has marching bands. And I began to understand that there's a powerful unifying force in music that's not just hypothetical. It's because of our body chemistry. And I've now studied a lot of what music does to our bodies. And the explanation of this, if it's true, you would expect that most songs would be love songs about bonding and romance and sex. And in fact, most songs are about that. And people tell me, Ted, you're always writing about sex. And I said, I don't, you know, it's not that I have a prurient mind. It's not that I'm obsessed with these things, but 
once you study music, you understand that it actually does contribute to the propagation of the species. And so I think that's important. And I now believe that Darwin was more or less correct. So I've, I've reversed my view on that. I want to make one more comment, though. You mentioned the universality of music, too. And this is where I've gotten embedded in many arguments with people. But everything I have seen as a music historian tells me that music is universal. And I now believe, although I cannot prove it, that the rules of harmony and the rules of music were not invented by humans. They were discovered. They were out there. They, they existed universally. And now... With our own human music, we emulate it more or less, much like calculus. The, the, the logic behind music is much like calculus. And they don't say that, that Newton or Leibniz invented calculus. They discovered the calculus. And so I now believe that there's a power of music embedded in our existence, in the human condition and in, in the world we live in. And we discover it and we can tap into that power if we understand it sufficiently. Yeah. And those are important things, I believe that normally music critics won't write about. But really, they should, because these are the actually the building blocks of why we listen to songs in the first place. So one critique of, of what you said uh, you know, about evolution would be the idea that it's a, it's a just-so story. This is a, the phrase that is often leveled as a critique of evolutionary psychology, which is, how do we know our taste for music evolved with any purpose, right? It could just be a happy side effect of the fact that we have ears and, you know, to detect sound. It could just be, you know, I mean, Steven Pinker called our love for music, I think, an auditory cheesecake. And the analogy was, you know, we figured out, we have this taste for sugar and food that has an evolutionary purpose. And then we figure out how to manipulate that and make something that appeals to it that never would have existed in nature or in our evolutionary past. So how do we know, is it that music evolved, our love for music evolved so that we could bond? Or is it that we happen by pure chance, really, to have this ability to love music, and then we've leveraged it into our customs and our culture, and we've used it as a, as a way to bond, as a not as an afterthought, but as that wasn't its original purpose. Let me address a few things there, because you're raising a number of deep points, and I, and I want to make a, a few comments in response to them. First of all, I want to say that although I agree with Pinker on many things, I absolutely disagree with his idea that music is auditory cheesecake. The way he puts it is the only purpose of music is it stimulates our brain. And in that way, it's no different than a drink of whiskey or a recreational drug. And there's no deeper purpose to music than that. And I profoundly disagree with that because I believe music changes human life, it changes human society, and music has been a force throughout history for expanding freedom and personal autonomy. And I have documented this in my studies, things that most people don't pay attention to. But, you know, the first love songs came from a village in, in ancient Egypt called Deir el-Medina. This was also the same village that had the first labor strike, first successful labor strike, actually forced concessions from the pharaoh. And people will tell me that's pure coincidence, but it's not. Because if you have the confidence to sing about choosing your own love object in life, setting a source of personal autonomy as a direction in your private life, you also have the confidence to demand more money at work. And you'll find again and again that music changes society. If you go to the protests in, in Hong Kong, they're singing songs. If you go to protests in Russia, they're singing songs. There's a long history we know of in the United States of, of protest music. So... Pinker doesn't do music justice because music changes everything. Maybe I found my own wife through music. As a musician, it raises you in the, the hierarchy of potential mates. That's, I mean, that's 
if you doubt that, go look backstage when the Rolling Stones get off off the stage and all the women lined up to meet them, you know. So music changes things on a personal level, a community level, and a social level. So I disagree with Pinker's dismissive comment of auditory cheesecake. However, I do believe music absolutely is in our lives because of its evolutionary value. It does lead to the procreation of the species. And they've done studies. They show that if you, a guy did this study where he would go up to women in a public place and try to get their phone number. And he found that very small percentage of them would give him their phone number. Then the next day he did the same experiment, but he held, held a guitar case. <laughs> so he went and asked for the women's phone number. Now he had a guitar case in his hand and his ability to get the phone number tripled. Mm. The interesting part is they also did it with an, with an athletic bag. And they found the athletic bag was not as convincing to women as the guitar. Mm. So that's, mm-hmm. I, I feel validated that I spent all this time in my <laughs> life practicing a musical instrument. But I do believe that, that music is, is evolutionary. Now, you raise a good point. How can we prove this? And the fact is, Darwin's theory and many theories, Darwin's theory, Freud's theory, Marx's theory, are what Karl Popper would call unfalsifiable. That means you can't prove they're wrong. In, in the case of Darwin, when he says that evolution is the survival of the fittest, he defines the fittest as those who survive. And he divides the survivors as those who are fit. So it's a tautology. He actually, and, so, and you find that many of these theories are constructed in such a way that you can't disprove them. No matter what happens... Whoever ends up living at the end of the day, Darwin said, I was right. That was the fittest. But he's, he's stacked the deck. And, and that's a deep methodological issue I don't want to really dig into. But I will say that sometimes theories that are unfalsifiable are still illuminating and they help us understand the world. So the fact that there's a, a fundamental blind spot in Darwin's theory in which he's posing something that you can't really disprove doesn't mean that it's not illuminating and, and also doesn't mean it's not fundamentally correct. So I, I agree with you. We can't absolutely prove that. We listen to love songs to procreate and to advance the species, but there's an enormous amount of cumulative evidence that that, in fact, is the case. So your thesis running through many of your books and some of your writing on Substack is that music history is generally portrayed as too respectable, that we don't sufficiently acknowledge how subversive most music was in its time, and that we, you know, we often tell the official history that was only written sort of in retrospect. So like, for example, there's this great Black Mirror episode. I don't know if you know the show. I think it was, it's uh, from the first season where this guy is in this sort of dystopian society and he's completely rebellious and um, a threat basically to the system. And at the end of the episode, the system ends up co-opting him and giving him sort of a small space as a content creator that's now allowed you know, because it would be too dangerous. You know, after you fail to suppress the thing, you then pretend like you liked it all along. So can you talk a little bit about how you develop that perspective as a music historian and how that differs from the way most music historians write? Well, you're absolutely right. I fundamentally believe now that music always comes, innovative music, I should say, innovative music always comes from the margins of society. And I didn't understand that well until after many, many years of digging into these things, but it makes perfect sense. I'll give you just a couple examples. First of all, look at how often musical innovations come from port cities and border cities where the outsider comes into the community. Now, we saw that in the United States, jazz came out of New Orleans, which was the largest port of its day. This is And it was the most diverse city in the world. Mm -hmm. When jazz originated in New Orleans, it was the most diverse city of the world. So every possible influence is mixing in there. And if you look at every musical innovation, it's always a port city. 
You know, the, the British invasion in Iraq didn't come from London. It didn't come from Buckingham Palace or 10 Downing Street. It came from Liverpool, the most vibrant port in Britain. The opera came out of Venice at a time when it was the most vibrant port in Europe. The same thing is true of Madrigal. The Troubadour Revolution came because it was in the south of France on the border of Spain where the, the Islamic influence came up through Spain and the Troubadours borrowed that for their love songs. You go back to ancient times, the lyric, the lyric song in the Western world was invented more or less by a woman named Sappho who lived on an island called Lesbos. That's where we get the word lesbian, in fact, is this of, of Sappho's sex life. And that's a, that's, that's a complex story. Like I say, people say you're always talking about sex, but let's put that aside for a time. Let's just look at Lesbos the island. A few years ago, when you had the Syrian refugee crisis, thousands of boats were ending up on the shore of Lesbos because it is even today the pathway into Europe. So is it a coincidence that the lyric song in the Western world came out of an island that was an intersection between continents and cultures? No, not at all. So the outsider is always the source of musical innovation. And I'll give you just one more. I could give many examples of this. But I'll just give one more strange little tidbit. Let's look at the impact of slaves on music history. When you studied music at Juilliard or when you study music anywhere, one of the first things they teach you are the modes. They say this is the Lydian mode. This is the, uh, the, the Dorian mode. This uh -huh. is the Mixolydian mode. But what they don't tell you, who were the Lydians? Well, the Lydians were slaves. The more interesting modes, the more revolutionary radical modes were named after slave musicians. And if you go to the ancient world in different cultures, the most exciting musicians were slaves. Now, now, no one tells you this in music school. And then I found the same thing if you look at the origin of the love song. Before the troubadours, they got it from the Muslim world where it came out of Baghdad, where the love song in the modern world was invented by female slave singers in the Islamic communities, primarily Baghdad, but it came into Spain. And then look at the United States. How many musical innovations have in the Americas came out of slaves or the descendants of slaves? And it's everything. I mean, this is the source of innovation. This is the engine of musical innovation for the last century. And people look at this and they can't say it's coincidence because it's not. But the, the, the other key thing is the outsider eventually becomes legitimized. Hmm. And we've seen that in our own time. I, I mean, I remember when Bob Dylan was a dangerous protest singer. Now he's a Nobel laureate. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger were, were considered somebody that had to be censored. Mm -hmm. BBC would not play some Rolling Stone songs on the radio. Well, now he's Sir Mick Jagger, Sir Paul McCartney. It takes about 30 to 50 years, but every radical musical innovation eventually enters the mainstream. And then yeah, you need so to I've start the cycle all over again. Question about that. I mean, that has clearly already happened with jazz. You know, jazz, as you know, you know, in the in the forties and fifties, definitely in the forties, and especially bebop was considered lowbrow gutter music, not to expose your daughters to. And now it's totally institutionalized. You can study it at Juilliard, as I did. You can go see a highbrow show at Lincoln Center next to the opera. And it's actually now considered an elitist thing, right? Like you can be <laughs> you can be seen as too elite and as an elitist for liking jazz as opposed to other, you know, salt of the earth type music. Do you think that that is going to happen with hip hop? I mean, you could make an argue that it already partly has, like, you know, Kendrick Lamar has won a, a Pulitzer Prize, but I still think by and large, hip hop, you're not going to be seen as an elitist for listening to hip hop. But do you think it's on the same arc as jazz in 20 or 30 or 50 years, you'll be able to study hip hop at Juilliard and it will be seen as a kind of sanitized elite genre of music? 
It's already happening. You know, the Smithsonian is is studying hip-hop. The Library of Congress is celebrating hip-hop. You have the Pulitzer Prize going to a hip-hopper. You know, I've met people that teach hip-hop at Harvard or, or things like this. The legitimization is already taking place. And, you know, even albums that were were censored a few years ago are now in the government official archive of, of great musical masterpieces. So this is an issue. The, the more fascinating thing is how do hip hoppers deal with this? And I would, would say that what I learned from my jazz background is that respectability is a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. We all want to be respected. You know, we all want to have respect for what we do. But if you get too aligned with the system and the powers that be, you lose your edge. Mm. So I do think that that hip hop has a challenge. How respectable does it want to be? And uh, but I, th- I think we're still in the early days of that. I, I think you're going to see. It's like rock and roll. I remember the first time I heard an oldies rock radio station where they played rock music, but for nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed by it. Now nowadays, I just take it for granted. The the, the oldies rock station for old people. But the first time I heard it, I was amazed that you could take a music that was so rebellious and turn it into a nostalgic thing. That's going to happen to hip-hop. It's already starting to happen. The question is, what does the next generation of musicians do? Do they want to get a tenure job at a university? Do they want to be a professor? Do they want to get awards? Or do they want to shake up the system? Uh They're going to have to choose that, but they will have to choose. My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman, a platform where I have honest, unfiltered conversations with the world's brightest minds on the most pressing issues of our time. The ability to think freely is what moves society forward. That's why for all fans of the show, I've created the Unfiltered Community. The Unfiltered Community is a space for open, honest conversations about difficult social and political issues. In the Unfiltered Community, you'll also gain access to unaired episodes of Conversations with Coleman, exclusive Q&As with me, and other bonus content. Join me and thousands of others as we challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Let's change the world one conversation at a time. Join the community today at www.colemanhughes.org slash unfiltered. So you write about music. One of the things I like about the way you write about music is that you don't write like a music critic. So if I read Fader or Complex or any of the big music criticism magazines, what I often find is like an album will come out, right? There will be an article about it. The critic either likes it in a predictable way or dislikes it in a predictable way for reasons that seem pretty divorced from the average listener's experience. And so so I'll give you one example. Ariana Grande released an al- her latest album, maybe it was two years ago or something, and it had the hit song Positions, which, you know, the whole thing is, it's kind of, a, it's, it's an in- innuendo, like I'm switching positions for you. It's about sex, basically. It's the subtext is sexual, right? Um, but the text is not sexual. And that's why we love it, right? And the music video yeah. is also sex is in the subtext, but not in the text of the video. Anyway, some major music critic basically said, the reason I, this song sucks, it's just a bunch of sexual innuendos. And I thought to myself, that's not a critique. That's precisely the point, right? And the, the number of times I've read a music critic that actually doesn't seem to understand why normal people like music. It's like, I've read music criticism 
and I, I get to the end of the article and I've gotten no indication that this human being even likes music. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, do you read music criticism? Do you, what do you think the state of music criticism is in our society? Do you think it's useful? What's your point of view on this? I've gotten into a lot of trouble in the past by critiquing the state of music criticism. This is, it's funny, of all the things I write about this, uh, I wrote an article a few years ago uh, saying, is music criticism turning into lifestyle reporting? Mm. Which I thought was a, a pretty obvious o- observation, but I, I never... So what, what was the observation, though? Can you, can, you, can you spell that out for me? I never saw such angry people. Curiously enough, it was just other music critics that got angry. Actually, actual members of the public and music listeners... Uh, agreed with what I said and understood what, the what, what was the thesis? Can you spell that out for me? How, how is it becoming lifestyle reporting? Well, I, and what I did is, is I, I looked at how musicians are covered in the media and it's sort of like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial kind of approach where people focus on lifestyle categories. And then when they deal with the music itself, they deal with it in the most banal generalities. And I, but I don't want to go down that path here. But let me make a couple observations that I think are very salient to your point. The first thing I would say is all of us need guides to finding good music. Even I, I mean, I listen to, to new music hours every day, but I always also need people to guide me to the mm-hmm. good music. We all, and the, they're called curators in the current day. I don't, I don't know if that's a good term or a bad term. I'd make the claim that if a critic does not seem interested in your enjoyment of the music, you should take that as a bad sign. So do I, I would never trust mm. any critic. I would never trust any critic that doesn't seem to care about my enjoyment. Now, when I say that, people come back at me and say, well, Ted, of course, every critic wants you to enjoy the music. And I say, is that in fact true? Is it in fact true that the critic wants me to enjoy the music? And then I just list off all the other priorities that a music critic might have. For example, I know music critics that write things to please an editor. I know that that sounds like an outrageous claim, but they write this to please the editor. I know other critics that write things because they want to hang out with the musicians on that corporate jet or what. I don't know. I don't, I never go on these corporate jets, but some writers write to curry favor with the musicians. Mm -hmm. Some people write about music to get tenure in a music department. Some people write about music in order to appear cool and to Mm -hmm. have a pose that will impress people. Right. I've heard people actually say that as a music critic, I tell people about music I know they're not going to like because that's my function. Now, this isn't, this isn't, Mm. you can spend all day just talking about that one. But my bottom line is that if you're reading music criticism right now, there are good people out there people that you can trust. But the the fundamental question you should say, is this critic aligned with me? Now, maybe you don't want music you enjoy. Maybe you want to know about musicians whose name you can drop at a cocktail party. Mm. Maybe you want to know about musicians that will impress your body. I don't know. Maybe you need to get tenure to university too. But but you need to make sure that the critic you're trusting as a curator and guide is aligned with your interests. And the priority I use in my own life is I look for people that guide me to music that I will enjoy. In turn, when I write about music for other people, I try to guide them also to music that they enjoy. And that gets back to the fundamental reason why you were unhappy with that particular review, because it didn't seem aligned with what the music listener really wants from the song. So here's another question, something I've, I've long wondered about. European classical music, symphony orchestra, string quartets, Beethoven, Mozart, that whole genre of music is relatively unpopular. I mean, relative to 
hip hop and pop. I don't know what the ratio is, what, what share of the market it has, but it's orders of magnitude less, I think. At the same time, nearly every huge movie from especially large epic movies like the Avengers, anything like that, will, as a matter of formula, use European classical music, whether it's creating a new score or it's you know playing Ride of the Valkyries or something. It will use the symphony orchestra to as the score, as the soundtrack. Why is it that this style of music that is actually relatively unpopular is always used as the first, you know, why is it that audiences clearly demand and enjoy European classical music the most in the context of a movie, but not outside of that context? That wouldn't be obvious to me. It's interesting to probe into this. I once looked at movies that relied heavily on the European, especially the German Romanticist classical music tradition. We're talking about Beethoven, Wagner, you know, that whole shtick. Mm -hmm. And I found that the more they relied on those sounds, the higher the kill count in the movie. The more the more people got killed in the course of the movie, the more you had this sweeping romantic music there. You know, so, you know, it's going to do a movie that has a thousand people killed on screen. You need something that sounds like Wagner. Mm-hmm. But what, and the same thing is true of video games, too. If you look at video games, what happens in the video game determines the sound they want. And I don't want to dig into this too deeply because it would take forever. And in fact, I'm a huge fan of classical music. And, and me, I me listen too. to a lot yeah. of Bach and Absolutely. Haydn and Mozart. I would say, though, that in our lifetimes, and for the last hundred years, music has been embedded in lifestyles. And I was talking about lifestyles before. And we assume that was always the case, but that wasn't always the case. The word lifestyle didn't even exist in English till around 1950. And the idea that music represented your lifestyle was unknown. If, if you were living in a village... Let's say you were living in a village in Eastern Europe in 1850, and you're going to a wedding, and there's a dance, and the musicians start playing, and you're dancing. The question, does that music represent your lifestyle? What you would say, no, this is my life. This is not my lifestyle. This is my life. The music was embedded in your life. Nowadays, though, music is a lifestyle choice, and the music is supposed to represent who you are as an individual. So if I say I like country, or I like classical, or jazz, or hip-hop, or reggae, or you know, opera or whatever. I'm sending out messages to people. And what this does is it muddies the water so that it's for someone like me who cares about music for how it sounds and not trying to, to send coded messages to other people. This muddies the water. But I will say that people's perception of classical music, when it will fit and when it won't, for example, in a, in a movie with a large war scene where it wouldn't fit in the background while they're eating dinner, I think this is more a matter of lifestyle than the music itself, and that a lot of things that people won't listen to, like, you know, Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier, are, are some of the greatest masterpieces ever made by human culture. And if some extraterrestrial came here from another galaxy, one of the first things you'd play for them might be Bach. I don't know. I mean, that would be one of the first things I would do. And so I would just say a lot of our perceptions and how we respond to music is it becomes an emblem of our life and who we are. And it's a signaling mechanism. Like, like people are saying now that college degrees aren't important for what you learn. It's a signal. Hey, I went to this prestigious institution. Mm-hmm. To some degree, music is becoming like that too. And I think it's, it's good to recognize that. And I think the critics themselves should recognize that more because often they are participants in that trend rather than, than people who grasp it and its implications. So recorded music is relatively young. 
the technology to record and I should say mass produce music is what? Really a hundred years old at most? I mean, relevantly, maybe even 90 years old? Well, it was invented back in the 19th century, but people didn't really have record players until about a hundred years ago. Right. In fact, when, when Thomas Edison invented the, the phonograph, he thought it was going to be to record speaking, that, you, that would record speech. Mm-hmm. Edison was shocked when people started using the record player for music. I mean, that, was, that, wasn't, yeah. that wasn't his intention. Uh, so legitimately, uh, recorded music is about 100 years old in terms of its actual impact on musical culture. Yeah. So in that time, there's been, so, I guess in my mind, there's been really one major change in how music is recorded, which is to say, you know, for the first, throughout the 20th century, through the 70s, and to some extent, the 80s, everything was recorded analog and um, on tape. And now almost everything is recorded digitally. And, you know, I'm curious if what have been the consequences of that of that change? Well, there are many consequences, uh, some good, some bad. You know, we live in a digital society. Everything about music is linked to technology. And the technology is both empowering to us, but the technology also controls us. So let me pinpoint a bad thing, for example. As I mentioned before, music releases hormones in the human body that bonds us to other people. We become closer to the people around us when we listen to music together. But for the most part, people now listen to music isolated. They're plugged into a phone or something. And they listen to music individually rather than communally. Mm -hmm. And so the power of music to transform your life and to embed you in a community of real human beings has been limited and constrained by turning music into a feature to sell a digital device. And God bless the folks at Apple, but really the way they view music, they don't care about the music provided they can sell more of these. And the same thing is true. Google has enormous power over music because they own YouTube. They don't care about music except that they would sell more ads or whatever. And so there's a a degrading and demeaning quality to how music has been embedded into digital devices that I think is negative. And to me, that's much more important than arguments over whether digital sound is better than analog. You know, I've gone back and forth on that. I embrace digital sound, but more lately I'm returning to analog. To me, that's less important than the embedding of music into a digital culture and a technocratic utopian dream or dystopian dream. Now, on the other hand, there's a good part of this, and I, and I want to give full credit to this. Because of the digital age, I as a musician now can reach other people around the world instantaneously. Now, you and I can have this conversation in a way we couldn't have had. Uh, 40 years ago, a band in New Zealand or China or South Africa or whatever can put a song up on Bandcamp right now and I can listen to it in an hour. Mm-hmm. And the borders are coming down and, and the ability to reach people is great. And if you're a musician, best of all, you don't need to deal with a record label. You don't need to deal with the man. And I say the man because it was usually a man. It used to be there were a bunch of gatekeepers you had to please before your music got heard. So I think the the best thing about the this shift to the digital age is that no one can control music to, today, and the musician has more freedom than ever before. The bad thing, though, is that by turning music into a digital attribute of a device, we have to deal with all these technocrats who have a vision of music 
that may be at odds with what is good for us as individuals or what is good for us as members of the community. Yeah, there are a couple separate issues here. One is the transition from analog to digital. You know, that was like, you know, I was born in 96. I'm just old enough to remember when you would go to Best Buy and buy a CD. I'm not old enough to remember records as anything but a kind of boutique symbolic purchase. But you used to buy a CD and put it inside of a physical player and listen to the whole thing top to bottom. And that's a particular experience that I think people have less frequently now. There's very little reason to listen to a whole album anymore. And I think in some sense, albums have become sort of an excuse to market a single or an an excuse to have a rollout for an artist when really it's all about the one or two singles that that are on the album that are going to be put on a playlist. People are going to listen to it in the context of a playlist with other music, not in the context of the album itself. And, you know, one thing we should talk about explicitly here is the transition from buying a CD, you know, in the year 2000 to illegally downloading an MP3 in the year like 2005 off of LimeWire to having a Spotify or Apple Music account where you pay $10 a month and have unlimited access, right? It used to be, you know, $10 would buy you one CD in 2000. Now $10 a month Instead of buying me one CD per month, it buys me all the music that has ever been recorded, right? And that has had the inevitable result of making recorded music not at all profitable. You know, I think we've all seen the like, you know, major artists that get thousands and thousands of streams seem to get a couple dollars a month for it. So can you talk about what that transition has done to the music industry? There are a number of impacts. I'll start with the economic one. The price that music has been set at is not a viable one for everybody to make a good living. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? The idea came out very early that to get people to subscribe to a streaming platform, it had to be less than $10 a month. $9.99 $9.99 or $6.99 or $4.99. It depends on where you are in the world. But the idea is it had to be below $10 a month. Now, why was that price chosen? Well, first of all, they chose that price before they understood what it meant. And this was very interesting. The whole music industry shifted to streaming before it proved it could be profitable. Even now, Spotify is struggling for profitability. Even now, as huge as it is, Spotify is struggling to make a profit. And it's because they set this price arbitrarily or based on human psychology rather than on on the music industry. The simple fact is there's not enough money made from music to please everybody because there's a lot of stakeholders. Let's look at the stakeholders. The record label wants to make some money. The song publisher wants to make some money. The the song composer wants to make some money. The folks at Spotify that do the streaming want to make some money. I have all these people, and I, I haven't even mentioned the musician yet, but the problem is the musician is often the last person they think about because musicians aren't organized in a way to have an influence. So the, the musicians who create the artistic product that the whole industry is based on are getting almost nothing. I did a survey recently, people asking them, who do you think is most important to the success of a song? Well, they all think it's the musician, but the publisher makes more money. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. Now, there's a, that's a whole conundrum. But anyway, so streaming from an economic point of view is not going to be as profitable for musicians as the old approach. A couple other observations, though. I'm no Luddite. I love being able to stream too. I want to have complete access to everything. You can't see it here, but there's a closet over there where I have thousands of compact discs. I haven't even opened that closet Mm. in in months because everything I need, I can stream and I love it. But let me make one point. I'm old enough to remember that when I wanted music, I had to buy the album. 
And I was on a tight student budget. And I told you about my working class origins. I was borrowing student loans to get my degree. And I just was always struggling to to pay bills. Sometimes I had to choose between whether I was going to eat a meal or buy a record. And sometimes I chose to buy the record, you know. But even at best, I could afford to buy just a few records every month. Not many, just a few. Now, what was the implication of that? I'll tell you, Coleman, I listened to those albums over and over again. Mm-hmm. I would buy an album and I listened to it and I wouldn't like it, but I would st- <laughs> I, I would have mm-hmm. to give it a second chance. Mm-hmm. It's a sunk investment. After I bought that album, I couldn't just say, well, I don't like this. I, 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 I had suffered to get that album. So I had to give an album a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. And I learned a lot about music because I was put in a situation that when I took ownership of an album, I really had made a commitment to it, and I really had to give that album a chance. And I think that something is lost when people can dance from song to song so easily. So let me put that in context. I'm not a Luddite. I love to stream. I don't think streaming should go away. I think streaming is the future, and, and, I, and I accept it. But something is lost when people don't have that same deep kind of commitment to something as when they actually have to reach into their wallet and pay money for it and then own it. If you enjoy my podcast, then you'll love this new podcast by Professor Steven Pinker, who needs no introduction. His podcast, The Life of the Mind, covers a wide range of topics, including psychological experiments, language, and even music. The Life of the Mind by Steven Pinker takes us on a psychological journey, unearthing truths about our own complex minds while shattering common fallacies. Pinker discusses how our minds actually perceive what we see and feel in the world around us. So check out The Life of the Mind now. It's accessible on YouTube as well as on your favorite podcast platform. Find the link to the latest episode in the description. One thing you've written about is the competition between old music and new music. So you've written about how the share of the market that goes to old music is increasing and the share of the market of, you know, what people are listening to in streaming total, that is new music is actually declining. What is behind that trend? And why is that trend worrisome to you? It is worrisome. And people have many interpretations of this. And and I hear a lot of people from my generation say, oh, Ted, the new songs are no good. Mm-hmm. People listen to the old songs because they're better. And uh, I don't want to go down that nostalgia trip. I'm very interested in what's happening on the music scene right now. Right now. And I have to say that I listen to a more than a thousand new albums every year. This year, I have already listened to more than a thousand newly released albums that came out in 2022. By the way, just quickly, how, how, how do you... I spend hours every day listening to new music. That, you know, How do you capture your impression? Do you write down your impressions so that you remember what you thought of things? Or do you just naturally remember your because if you listen to hours of new music every day it's very tough to remember i imagine i keep a ranking and some comments but basically i don't review a thousand albums if i if i write a review i have a very different mindset when i listen to these albums i have two goals one is to understand what's happening right now in the musical culture so i listen to every kind of genre every kind of genre i'll listen to but also i'm listening to the things i enjoy and so basically the main goal is for, in a couple months, I'm going to publish my list of the 100 best albums of the year. And my main goal is to find during the course of the year, 100 albums I really, really like and feel confident sharing with other people. Mm-hmm. But let me connect back to your original point. By doing this, I do hear great music all the time. Every week I will hear something that blows my mind. 
But, and here's the important point, it almost never comes from a major label, almost never comes from a major label. It's indie or self-produced and it's hard to find. Mm. And I find that I, with each passing year, the, the major labels are less trustworthy about the new artists they sign. And even the new labels themselves sort of admit this because they're the ones that are buying all the publishing rights to the old songs. Sony, Universal Music, they'll spend more money buying up old songs than developing new artists. So it even seems as if the record industry itself, the major labels, have lost confidence in their own world. Liken them to the priests of ancient Rome who no longer believed in Zeus and Jupiter or the ancient gods, but they still had to pretend they had faith because they were part of the institutional power structure. I think record labels are like that now. They've lost faith in the redemptive power of new music. So my, if you ask me why are old songs replacing the new ones, it's because there's still great new music out there, but it, it gets lost in the shuffle. The record labels don't want to find it and they don't want to build artists for the future. And so it becomes more and more tempting all the time to listen to something from a day in which more effort was put into developing and, and advancing the artistry of the, the music genres. Mm. That, that's my, my simple answer is that there is still great music out there today that's new, but because it's so hard to find, people gravitate to the old and familiar. Right. The cost of finding it may be higher than, you know, the cost of just buying up the rights to tried and true music. And and this mirrors a trend that you've also written about, which I, I mean, I think this is a trend many people have just noticed just by watching movies. But, you know, like this year, if you look at the top 20 movies, certainly the top 10, I think everyone, every single one, the top 10 in terms of box office has been either a remake of an old movie, a sequel, or a brand extension somehow. I guess Jordan Peele's movie, Nope, is like the one exception here. But every other, and you know, I've seen you share an, a chart that shows just the share of big budget movies that are remakes and reboots and brand extensions has been going up measurably in the past 10 to 20 years. So do you see that as the same, coming from the same sources as this, the rise of old music and the decline of new music? Absolutely. What's happening in music is the same as what's happening in movies, the same as happening in publishing. Now, how do I describe it? Well, I think there are two trends here. One is... As each of these industries become larger and larger, they become more cautious. So you run a movie studio, you want to make sure that every movie you release is a hit and you don't want to take chances. Mm -hmm. Your business is too big now to run like a gambling casino. You can't take risks. And so the safest bet is to have last year's movie look like next year's movie look like last year's hit movie. So you're always looking in the rearview mirror saying, well, you know, people like the last 20 Spider-Man movies all come out with another Spider-Man. Or people loved Indiana Jones movie. Harrison Ford might be in his 80s, but we're going to get him back for another Indiana Jones movie. Or anything that's proven you want to do over and over again. And this is where my business training helps me. Now, years ago, I, I worked with somebody that had been an insider at one of the most successful marketing companies in the world. And he showed me some internal documents. He said, Ted, I shouldn't really show you this, but this is how we do marketing at the greatest marketing company in the world. And really what it boiled down to was, do not think that because you're in marketing, you're supposed to be creative and imaginative. So that's the biggest misconception, he says, is that marketing people think they're supposed to be creative. And that's not true. He says, successful marketing companies test everything with focus groups. And what the goal is to find a formula that works and keep on using it over and over and over again. 
And I said to him, that can't be what marketing is all about. I said, no, no, this is how a successful marketing company works. You keep, you find a formula, then you keep on doing it over and over. Well, this is the movie industry. This is why the music industry is stagnating now. It's not because there aren't fresh new artists out there, but they don't want to give them a chance. Even if they gave them a chance, they couldn't get radio airplay because the formats are so narrow now. You know, country music station will only play a certain kind of country song. A rock station will only play a certain kind of rock song. Even classical music stations will only play certain kinds of classical songs. So everything is backward looking and operating in the rearview mirror. So that's the number one trend is people are becoming more cautious. But here's what makes it even worse is you've got this thing called the algorithm. And the algorithm is, has the same impact. The algorithm evaluates the songs you liked and listened to last month and will recommend the songs next month that sound the same. Mm-hmm. So the algorithms that all these industries are embracing are reinforcing the same cautious mentality that's coming from the finance people in head office. Because an algorithm is just a feedback. Algorithm is only a feedback. When, they, when the algorithm recommends a movie or a book or a song for you, it can only do that on the basis of what you did in the past. So there's a convergence here between the cautious worldview of the executives and the, the algorithms that, that run the digital world. And they both are forcing everybody to operate in a culture that looks through the rearview mirror in which anything that's fresh or different or interesting or innovative is screened out day one. And I have to say, as a music critic, as a music lover, I'm tremendously alarmed by this, and I wish the music media would do more to shake things up and call things out, but I've been waiting for a long time for that. It's not happening. I guess, I mean, what definitely in the movie conversation, what this means is people will want fresh. People will always want fresh. The question is, where are they going to get it from? If the only movies that can get a big budget are brand extensions, reboots, and and remakes, which is the direction of the trend, then that means you're not going to see fresh things at the movie theater. You're going to see fresh things somewhere else. Is it going to be, is it Netflix? Is it, you know, Apple TV and HBO and streaming? Um, Or do those streaming services suffer from some of the same, you know, flawed models that, that Spotify does? So you talk a little bit about Netflix and streaming and your perception of that business model and how it's doing. Once again, you're, you're hitting on absolutely vitally important issues. And these are things I think about a lot, which is in a cultural situation like now, which seems stagnant, where is change going to come from? And and I'll make a few observations here. First of all, I'll say that as we spoke earlier, my study of the whole history of music shows me change always comes from the outside. So Netflix is not going to solve this problem. Apple is not going to solve this problem. Google is not going to solve this problem. Something fresh will come from the outside and it will come from a very unexpected place. Uh, Maybe even outside of the United States, you know, I don't know. But I'm just saying that, that something will shake up our complacency in all the genres, not just music and movies, all of them. Things will come from the outside to shake them up. Let me make another observation, though. This is very interesting because... I'm very focused on how trends develop. This is something I studied back at business school. I worked with the people that, that invented the analysis of trends, you know, what made things go viral and what kept them going viral. And also I studied how, how do trends come to an end? Because when you're in a situation where something is happening, like we just said now, and you think, well, this can't go on forever, yet it seems to. What's going on? You can't, you can't keep on making the same movie over and over again, can you? You can't keep releasing the same song over and over again. Can you, what happens? Well, this is very interesting. There's a great book called The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. 
who is an unusual guy. And I rarely, I rarely quote George Soros, but in this interest, in this instance, in this book, he analyzed how he made all this money in the currency markets, because that's how Soros became rich, is betting on currency. Now, you're wondering, oh, what are you talking about? How does this relate to culture? But it does. What Soros learned was that the trend in place will always continue much longer than makes sense. Mm, right. And it will actually go to a point of collapse and crisis before the trend reverses. Mm. And that happens in cultures as well. When you feel that you've reached a point of stagnancy and that the trend can't continue, it still will continue a few more years, but then it crashes. Then it crashes. And so my prediction is you're going to have a, a point where the studios release 83 Marvel superhero movies in the same summer because mm-hmm. <laughs> they have to keep on doing more and more to get their growth targets. You can't mm-hmm. just do one Marvel movie every year. You'd never hit, Disney would never hit its growth numbers with one Marvel movie. There's going to be a point where they're going to do what my friend in marketing did. They're going to keep doing the formula over and over again and they'll hit a saturation point and it will create a crisis. In, and I actually... I'm going to publish in the future an article on how this happened in the publishing industry back in uh, 1600, where they kept on having these stories about knights like King Arthur, and they kept peddling them over and over again until the whole thing collapsed. Yeah. But even when you think the trend can't continue, it will continue longer. But that just means when the day of reckoning comes, it's more intense. Yeah. And so I do believe you're going to reach a point where fresh things will happen and it will reverse and it's inevitable, but it's not going to be some genius at the head office in Netflix understanding that. That's the last place to look for innovation. So you've also written about the phenomenon of fake artists on Spotify. This is fascinating to me, and I think it's something not that many people know about. What is What do you mean by fake artists, and how is Spotify? what is Spotify doing here? I'm always very careful when I talk about Spotify because I don't want to make unfounded accusations or say things that I can't prove. And so I will say up front, I cannot prove this conclusively, but it looks as if Spotify is taking their main playlists, their very popular playlists, and putting songs in there because Spotify has bought the rights to these songs and don't have to pay royalties to the musicians. So curiously enough, if you look at all these playlists, there's musicians on it that nobody's ever heard of. And when you look into it, you find they're almost all from Sweden and and live near the Spotify headquarters, which is a warning sign. And they have millions and and some of these artists millions and millions of plays, and they've never done a show and they had don't even have have an Instagram. Right. And some of them, I hear like 30 artists are operating under 500 different names. I see it in jazz where I look at a jazz playlist. Now, you got to realize I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable about jazz. You know? <laughs> I've written books on jazz, and I see names on these playlists I've never heard of. Yeah. And so I do research, and it's always somebody, in, some producer in Sweden. Uh, and like I said, I can't prove this, but it looks like Spotify is doing music for hire basis deals with these people. So I buy the right to your music for a set fee. Then if I put it on a playlist and it gets 5 million listens, I don't have to pay you another penny. Mm-hmm. And that's what I call the fake artist thing. It's, it's actually a new scam. I thought I, had seen every, I thought I had seen every scam in the world in the music industry because the music industry is full of scams. But that was a scam I'd, I'd never heard of before. But it, it gets back to the whole question of these intermediaries like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. They don't really care about us. They have higher priorities. They have higher priorities than guiding us to good music. And I'll make one more observation, and this is just a plain fact. Who's the least profitable customer for Spotify? Well, it's the customer that listens to a lot of music because that's expensive. They're streaming a lot and there's a lot of royalties Mm -hmm. and rights. The most profitable customer for Spotify 
is actually the person who pays the subscription fee and never uses it. Mm -hmm. And this is different from the past. In the old days, the music industry was based on the devoted fans who love music. Now the music industry makes the most money on the fans that don't, don't give a damn about the song. And I think that can't be good for our musical culture or our broader culture in any way. But that's the reality of the new digital age. Yeah. Okay. So one question is, there are all these forces between the streaming services, the production companies, the record labels, and movies and music that are anti-innovation in their effect. On the other hand, there are, you know, there's TikTok, for example, which is essentially a Wild West scenario of innovation. Like Whatever you want to say about TikTok, there is extremely innovative short form content on there. I mean, and there's so much of it and there's such a low barrier to entry and a genuine possibility of any Joe Schmo going viral and becoming huge that it's really the opposite. It's the exact opposite. I mean, it's, it's not, it may not be a pure meritocracy, but there, there's some really low barrier to entry meritocratic element of it. Do you think that that is where innovation is going to come from? Well, you know, absolutely. I, I wrote recently about what I call down versus up as the main driver of cultural change right now, in which up are established institutions like the legacy record labels or movie studios or Ivy League universities or whatever. They're the established institutions that have been around forever and seem to control everything. And my point is that it's the down institutions. You can't even call them down. can't even use the word institution with them. It seems like a mess, but the, the, the down platforms are where all the cultural energy is. Now, what do I mean by a down platform? I mean, these are the people that operate outside of the large institutions. And so they go and they set up a YouTube channel or they get onto TikTok or they get onto Instagram or like you doing podcasting or me on Substack. Mm-hmm. We're our own boss. We do things our own way. We don't need the gatekeepers anymore and we just wing it and it's the wild west. And you can do almost anything you want on this podcast and no one's going to stop you. I can write anything I want on my Substack. Nobody's going to stop me. This is where all the creativity is in the culture. And the interesting thing is the insiders of the legacy institutions have no idea. That's right, yeah. They have no idea. I mean, I'll give you one example. This is amusing. But a few years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a hit piece on the YouTuber PewDiePie. Mm -hmm. And I don't pay any attention to PewDiePie, but I found this very amusing is they ran this hit piece, and then he did a video mocking the Wall Street Journal. The next day, the Wall Street Journal came to his house, and they're knocking on his door. And he says, leave me alone. And they said, no, you got to talk to us. He says, no, I don't. And the Wall Street Journal said, you need to talk to us because we're the people that are going to get your message out to the audience. That's hilarious that they thought And what that. he said is, I have 10 <laughs> times as many subscribers as the Wall Street Journal. And I checked the other day, PewDiePie now has 20 times as many subscribers as the Wall That's Street amazing. Journal. But see, the insiders at these places have no idea mm. what the influence you're having, I'm having, because you and I have plunged into this world. We see what's going on, but the people in the in these legacy institutions, they have to deny the vitality of what we're doing because we threaten their very existence because we're bypassed. And so my view is that that's true in music, where things like TikTok or Bandcamp or whatever are the main instruments of innovation in writing. It's, you know, what I'm doing on Substack, I'm finding a huge audience. I, I mean, I just, every, I looked at my subscription numbers yesterday. I couldn't believe how many subscriptions I'm getting in a day. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not saying that to brag about me. This is the I got on the right platform because the whole culture is shifting into these down platforms. And that's the future. Now, the fact is, 
It's invisible to many people because the legacy institutions have a vested interest in hiding what we're doing. Mm. Because in the old days, the legacy institutions would write about the counterculture. They'd do an article about Jack Kerouac or Allen Ginsberg or Hunter Thompson or whatever. But they can't take people like you and me and push us too far because we sort of threaten their gravy train. Mm. So my view is that anything that's going to come that's going to be exciting in the culture is going to come from podcasters, YouTube channels. Substack, uh, all these people on these alternative platforms, Web3, you know, blockchain crazy stuff. This is where the energy and the culture will come. And that's when I say it's going to come from an unpredictable place. That's one of the first things I think. About. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think just what's slowly going to happen is year by year, the legacy institutions are going to lose subscribers and be racking their brains. Why, why are our numbers just slowly going down, right? It's, it's, it's not going to be all at once. You can see this with movie audiences, right? Throughout the past 20 years, and I, I learned this doing research for this interview, just every year movie, you know, the share of people going to the movies has been going down. This is pre-COVID, right? And what is it? It's when you're in the mindset of every movie has to be a hit. This is the formula for the test audience. It feel it works. It may work with every movie, but slowly over the course of time, people are going to get tired. And they're looking for something new. And just slowly the audience for movies is going to shrink and people will be giving more of their attention share to things, to parts of the landscape where new things are being produced, like TikTok. Like, so in a way, movies are competitive with TikTok. Movies are competitive with Substack at some level. Right? It's all just about how people are spending their time. And attention share is going to just be drawn away from like sclerotic legacy institutions that can't innovate. Well, it's like, you know, like we're having a very intelligent conversation here. And I, I turn down a lot of offers to talk to mainstream media because everything for them has to be in 10 second sound bites. Mm-hmm. And so the, the kind of conversation we're having wouldn't be possible in the larger platforms. And right. so they've painted themselves into a corner. They've dumbed down what they've done over a period of decades. They've made it more bite-sized. And like I say, the trend hasn't reached an end point yet because the, the trends always go on longer than, than makes sense. But actually, the cultural energy now has completely shifted and in ways that the, the, the insiders, who in the past were the most powerful people in the culture, they're going to be the last ones to recognize it because recognizing it uh, would force them to accept some painful truths about their own business. Well, all right, Ted, this has been really fun for me. And I direct my listeners, if you have any interest in music and the music industry and film and the film industry to subscribe to your Substack because it's it's some of the most, it's not an accident that you're getting so many subscribers. You are, you're filling an, a niche in the way that you write about these things that I think is really great and, and people would enjoy. So can you give them the name of your Substack before I let you go and maybe your Twitter handle or website if you have one? Absolutely. I write on Substack on a periodical called The Honest Broker. And you can sign up for both free subscriptions or paid subscriptions. If you do paid, you get a little bit more, but there, I love free subscribers too. And my Twitter handle is my name, Ted Joya. If there's four vowels in a row in Joya, it's G-I-O-I-A. And either of those will, will get you caught up with what I do, which is covering many of the issues that we've been discussing today. So if people are interested in those, they should check out what I'm writing else. All right. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Coleman. Let's do this again. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.